So whoever knows the right thing to do, the right thing to do. Have you ever wondered that in your life? Am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right decision? This thing I'm faced with, the Bible doesn't just directly tell me which one to choose. What does it tell us to do? The first and most important aspect of knowing the right thing to do is knowing that we inwardly don't have it. We don't know it. We can't do it on our own. The human flesh and mind cannot replicate or recreate or originate the righteousness of God. It's impossible. We must submit ourselves first to the word of God and the word alone for wisdom. This is where true wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from the mind of man because the mind of men and women is is deluded by sin. It is corrupted in its nature. It does not say or do the right thing on its own. It will say and do the wrong thing and enjoy the evil it produces. We say that we follow Scripture alone. Well, today we must now prove it. I love this uh, quote from J. Ronald Blue. He said, To attain spiritual maturity, a believer must do the good that he knows. He must stand confidently on God's word, even in trials and temptations. He must compassionately serve his brethren without favoritism, but with practical faith. He must speak carefully with a controlled and wise tongue, cultivating thought. He must submit in contrition to his all-powerful father, lawgiver, and judge with a humble spirit, just action, and a trusting heart. He must be what God wants him to be. Do what God wants him to do. Speak as God wants him to speak and sense what God wants him to sense. We are required to know the right way. We are required to know the right thing. But what is in that requirement? Do I also, in the pew, need to go to seminary? Do I need to attend these master level classes so that I can really understand the right things of God? No. Turn to Romans chapter 1. God has laid a charge on us this morning to know and do the right thing. But he has given the ability to know the right thing even to the wickedness of the world. And when they reject it, this is why God can righteously judge them on the last day. For Romans 1 verse 18 reveals that the right thing has been revealed even in creation. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth of God in their sin. It is much easier to reject the divine than to submit to his will for you. It is much easier to embrace atheism and say, well, he doesn't even exist at all. It's all just stardust. We're all just fizzing bags of chemicals that happen to randomly come together and nothing matters. I don't have to do it. Have you noticed when nothing matters, the flesh runs rampant? When nothing matters, sin is allowed? When nothing matters, there is no truth, nothing stands for anything? We see the most evil imaginable take place? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. It's been revealed in His creation. You cannot look at the sun, moon, stars, the trees, the grass, these systems of the ecosystem, and recognize that this all happened by random chance. It's impossible. 
But now, because of that, a requirement falls on all humanity to recognize that God is the one who started it, who created it, and who is now running it. It's the rejection of this that leads us to unrighteousness. It's the rejection of God's even creation that leads people to hell. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God is knowable even in his work. He's knowable even in his creation. He's knowable by looking at your surroundings. This is why the group in some foreign random place with no technology and having, having never heard the gospel before is not left out. God is revealing himself to these people through his creation. Imagine a baby. His parents are on a ship. The ship is wrecked in a storm. The parents tragically die and the baby washes up on the beach and survives. Now for the sake of the argument, let's say the baby lives. And for some reason, this island both contains enough food, medicine, and supplies for this young child to grow. And this person looks at their surroundings. They would not need a copy of a certain Christian confession to have also washed up on shore with them to know who God is. They could look at the world and recognize the Creator. Because remember John chapter 3, the Spirit blows where it wishes. It finds the people of God. They will not be left out, but they are also left with no excuse. This is why no one on Judgment Day can stand before God and say, Lord, I didn't know. It's not fair that you would send me to hell because no one ever told me. It is fair because His creation reveals His nature. Which means, which means there is enough Christ in the creation of the world, in the attributes of that creation, to demonstrate the gospel by which God can hold accountable those who reject it. No human can ever say to God, it's not fair. You did wrong. Not one. Not one. The Lord is plain and known. His work is seen by all, and there is now no excuse to avoid or reject Him. Now that we know, we can see Him without excuse. What then are we to know? How much of theology and doctrine and all these things and all these studies are we required to know about? Well, God answers that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now I will pre-tell you I am not tricking you. It's going to seem like I faked you out here a little bit with the next two verses, but I'm not meaning to do that. 1 Corinthians gives us the only thing we have to know. This might be a verse you have memorized in verse 2. And when I came to you, brethren, did I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Which I love this because Paul was an educated man probably multiple PhDs in his field, the place that he was at and the Pharisee he was and was going to be. The live stream can't hear that music. They just see me doing like this for no reason. 
He came to you not with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, there's two usual schools of thought on this. There's the ones who go, yeah, see, we don't need any of that fancy book learning, right? I've heard that before. We just need Jesus, right? Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I have to know is Christ. Now, it's easy to fall into, yeah, see, we don't need any lofty words of wisdom. We don't need any of that fancy stuff. We just need Jesus. Just give me plain and simple Jesus. Now, most of the time I have heard that. And what they mean is, is give me what I'm used to. What I grew up with, the style of worship that I was born into and was first saved in. And I, and I get that. I really do. Because what you're saved in is the memory of meeting God for the first time. Right? I was con- converted at a summer camp. Right? I so rarely, once a year, get to get back to that place sometimes. But it's special. It is special. Lofty speech or wisdom. So what Paul is saying is that I did not bring my intellect to you. I didn't convince you with my fancy words or my lofty wisdom. I didn't convince you with these great ontological arguments. I convinced you with Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that we can remain in a simple theological place where I just say the name of Jesus and that's it. That's all I do all the time. Because the author of Hebrews says we have to leave and go on to the maturity of Christ. We have to get deeper and better and, and, and glorify him more. So lofty speech or wisdom is not bad. But let me say this. If you're trying to communicate and you're using a language that your audience can't understand, who is the dumb one? It's the one who can't communicate. Right? Right? We could use all these fancy words and all these terms, right? but I only know my field. You get somebody, one of you in here, start talking about some mechanic parts, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no idea, right? So it's easy to get in our little field and go, ah, see, look how, look how lofty I am. Look how wise I am. And that's a bad place to be. But it's also not bad. It's not bad to be wise. It's not bad even to use big words. But Paul said, I've decided to know nothing among you. Now, here's the danger with this verse. He's immediately taking that and going, yep, I don't got to know nothing. <laughs> just, just Jesus, that's all I got to know. All right, I'll make you a bet. I agree. That's all you have to know is Jesus. Go to John chapter 1. And this is what I meant about the little fake out. What does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to know Jesus? Time would fail me today to give John 1 a full message. John chapter 1, verse 1 is one of the most intense and uh, densely compacted little verses. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I cannot express to you without a weeks-long intensive course on the meaning of that word, word. The Greek word for it is logos. Anybody use a logos Bible program? You may have heard of that. It's the one I use. I got a deal at a conference, so (laughs) that's why I'm able to use it. That word there does not mean just written word. 
Because in Scripture, the word graphe, or gra you know, that's the word for writing things down. That word, logos, is so compacted with meaning. Right? I have to read you a long note, so just bear with me for a second. The Gospel of John identifies the Christian logos through which all things are made as divine and further identifies Jesus Christ as the incarnate Logos. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word, who is God, was with God in the beginning. Which is a hearkening back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. That includes Jesus. So now... If you're going to know nothing except Jesus Christ, you've got to know all of Genesis. What else do we have to know if I'm just going to know Jesus Christ? Well, let me think. The Passover lamb in Exodus? The law in Leviticus? I'll, I'll skip a few for time. The, the shout to knock down the walls of Jericho? Gideon's fleece? The spike driven through the evil king's head? What else do I have to know? What are some other pictures? i got to know all of Isaiah to know Jesus Christ. John MacArthur said that if you only had the book of Isaiah, you could know everything about the Christ. Never having seen a gospel, and many people lived and died, having never saw a gospel, that they knew all about Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah. What else do I have to know? And i got to know the minor prophets. i gotta, I got to read Habakkuk. When's the last time you read Habakkuk? Be honest, when's the last time? It's been a while, hasn't it? Where is Habakkuk? So is Micah. <laughs> Where does he fall? Is he close to Jonah? I've read Jonah. <laughs> i got to read Habakkuk. i got to read Lamentations, lamenting the destruction of the holy city. To know Jesus Christ only is to know the Word, the Logos. And that Word is the entire revealed Word of God. Which means... If I'm going to trust that I only have to know Jesus Christ, then I have to know all 66 books. I have to know them in depth. I have to know how they live and breathe and are living and active even now. I have to know. So yes, you have no need today of lofty degrees and big words. You need the scripture. And I mean more than I read my devotion. I mean, we live and breathe the same way we live and breathe our air is how we need the Logos. A little more on this word, just because it's so good. Early translators of the Greek New Testament, such as Jerome in the 4th century, were frustrated by the inadequacy of any single Latin word to convey the meaning of the word Logos. And David, I apologize about that Latin getting besmirched there a little bit, but it's true. The Vulgate used in Principe Era Verbum, which thus constrained uh, to use the perhaps inadequate verb noun word, later Romance language translations had the advantage of nouns such as le verb in French. I'm butchering that, by the way. Re Reformation translators took another approach. Martin Luther rejected that in favor of wut, word, for instance, and later commentaries repeatedly turned to a more dynamic use involving the living word as used by Jerome and Augustine. Which means English is failing us here. To translate Logos is to translate that the incarnate word of Christ promised at the beginning, at the end, Alpha and Omega. This is what I need to know. And I love this so much because some of the verb tense used in this verse is a continuous action always in the past. So when he says he was in the beginning, 
he, it's not saying he had a beginning. In our beginning, Christ was there. And he existed eternally before that in the past. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I said time would fail us to, to go over all of John 1, but this text is teaching us that knowing Jesus means knowing the Word. All of it. All of it. Let me tell you something, guys. All the commentaries, all the books, all the degrees, all the education, everything is just an attempt to know this Word. That's it. Know it better. Know it deeper. Know it beyond little fun verses written on a card that sound really good in isolation. Knowing the truth of some of the verses that hurt. What's one of the famous ones, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, thus saith the Lord, plans to give you a future, prosper, hope. God's telling the Israelites this as he's sending them into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. People are going to die in captivity. But the promise is still true, the word. I have a hope for you, a future for you. But it's a spiritual future. So we got to know Christ and know him alone. Go back to James. For now we must talk about the uncomfortable subject of spiritual failure. Failure. James chapter 4 verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Have you failed before? How many of us in here, how many opportunities for the gospel? How many times could we so easily have chosen the righteous path, but instead we were led away by temptation and we embraced our sin? Now the unregenerate person is going to be left there, but the regenerate person, they're going to be called back. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. But we're going to dive, I hope, a little deeper into the good that I want, that I do not do. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Paul, in the middle of some of the greatest, most raised chapters in all of biblical history, Romans 6 and 8, writes Romans chapter 7. And I didn't realize the extent of theological debate going on about Romans chapter 7. An entire group of theologians who don't even believe that this verse is applying to the modern day Christian or church. Romans 7, start in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I sin. I, 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 I follow temptation. I fail. I fall. I stumble. And my face is in the mud. This is Paul talking. So there's no amount here of, well, I just got to be better, more spiritual. If I was a preacher, I'd be better. This is Paul talking. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Is that you? Do you sometimes do the very thing you hate? Is there a sin that you thought you had defeated, you had squandered, you'd pushed it down, and then suddenly it springs right back up? A root of bitterness in your life that's causing pain for you? Verse 16, now if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law and that is good. 
Because I reject my temptations in favor of God's law, and that is a good thing. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desires to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Nothing good dwells in us. We have to reject this late period heresy that people are inherently good on their own. They're not. All there is is the common grace of God that falls upon the world. That lost people help each other and and non-religious people take care of their children. That's God's common grace. This good does not come from within. And anyone who would like to argue so, take a look at your life. Every time you were in charge, what happened? Failure, destruction, pain, and sin. But every time God's in charge, what happens? Righteousness, joy, sanctification by salvation. I have this desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The Apostle Paul, he's he's not even writing from prison that we know of right now. He's still ministering. He's still on journeys, as best we can tell from the timeline. And he's still struggling with not doing right. Is that you in here today? Because it's me. Struggling to do what is right. So predisposed to do what is wrong. So easy to break God's law and so difficult it feels to keep it. So what do we do? For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. I have the desire. What are the desires? Because before Christ, my desires were to glorify myself, which is the real root of all sin. It isn't really the temptation that we really, really want. We want to glorify ourselves. It's what Satan wanted in heaven. I want to glorify myself. It's what Adam and Eve fell into. We'll be glorified if we eat of this fruit. And it's what every human being since has struggled with, fallen to, certainly tempted by, I am glorified over my Lord. That's it. There's truly only two things that happen in this world. Either God is glorified or you are. And all sin comes from the latter. And all joy and salvation comes from the former. So which are we going to be today? Because our flesh, guys, is a raging evil. It would be like if I had draped around my neck right now, walking around church talking to you, a rattlesnake attached to me, not going anywhere. And as I got close to you, his little rattle started going off, and his fangs began to show, and he reared up his head, ready to strike. That's our flesh right now. But we don't like to talk about this. This is not popular preaching. This is not the best way to grow the church, is to tell everybody how dumb you all are, (laughs) and how bad, and how evil. And you stink, too. (laughs) But it's God's word. And Paul knows the truth. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. So even if I do desire to keep God's law, if I do want to follow Christ, if I do want to preach the gospel, teach Sunday school, help out at church, do all these wonderful things, but I don't even have the ability. Where's the ability come from? It comes from Christ. Who's the good and faithful servant? Christ. Who's the risen lamb? Christ. Who is the Passover? Christ. He has the ability. Why? Because he prayed in that garden as blood hit the ground. Not my will, but the Father's. If we would do that, 
if we would be in such agony that we would even shed blood, but declare to God, not our will, but yours be done. We would be right. But we don't have the ability. Only our Lord and Savior does. This sin keeps us from doing what is right. Our flesh lusts and fails and we fall when we bow to its temptations. I choose the word uh, bow there very purposefully because we're supposed to bow to God. But instead, we look in the mirror and we bow to ourselves. You know, that, that really is it, isn't it? It's either God or it's a mirror and you're worshiping one of the two. And every problem and every joy traces back to those two things. Are you looking in the mirror? Because the true Christian looks in the mirror. No matter how much they struggle, no matter how much they may fail or fall, they look into that mirror and they're led by the Holy Spirit to recognize, I have to stop worshiping this image. This image is sinful. This image needs to be saved, not worshiped. And then I turn my eyes, I avert them away from flesh and I turn them to heaven. And I see the image of God who has no sin, who has no need of salvation, but has every, every deserving of my worship. And that's why it's so important. Because I don't even have the ability. Where does my ability come from? Christ who died for me, who said on the cross, it is finished, Father. Our people, I have not failed to get them. And Satan will never be able to rip them out of my hand. They don't have the ability, but I do. And Jesus, who has the ability, stayed on that cross, even though he could have called down how many legions of angels? To take him off and ascend him to heaven to be glorified forever. And he would have been. He would have been. But he said, Father, it is finished. It is finished. And he died took on all of our sin. Time would also fail me to go into the atonement. Oh my. But just, just for a little bit, because it's not noon yet. We have time. The atonement that Christ did on that cross, I mean, you think about every single thing you've ever done. Christ died for on that day. And he did not look through a corridor of time and saw the time I reached my hand into the cookie jar. No, this plan of God, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb and was shed for our purpose. Now, this lamb was innocent. He was blameless. He never made a mistake. never did anything wrong. He was tempted because being tempted is not sin. He was tempted, but he never fell to it. He answered Satan and John, uh, you know, in, in Matthew 4 there with Scripture, not his own thoughts. He has the ability. Why? Why does Jesus have the ability and I don't? Because the Word was God. And the flesh is not. Can I be a little more geeky this morning? One of the words in Greek for flesh is the word sarx, where we get the word sarcophagus. And I love this image of my flesh literally being a coffin that is wasting away. One of the lexicon meanings is the, the coffin that devours and that's what my flesh is. It's a coffin. It's death. And it is wasting away. It's devouring right now. And this flesh is not going to stay. It's going it's, it's to 
be burned up with everything else in this world. But my soul will spring free. And God, when, he, when we meet the Lord in the air, and I love that image, we're going to meet the Lord in the air and he's, he's taking us home. He has the ability. Now, what does that mean for you and I? Because it's easy to read that and go, well, I don't ever have to do anything at all. No, you've been given specific tasks by Christ. The first one is to repent and believe. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is what the Father said in the Gospel there to Jesus. So we're supposed to repent and believe. After that, then what? We begin to serve and be sanctified. That's why it is important to serve at church. It is important to work sometimes. The Corinthians had that backwards. They had reasoned out that they just had to be spiritual and never do anything in the flesh. And anything they did in the flesh, they could just keep doing what they wanted because their spirit was, was separate. They were engaging in horrific sexual sin. But they were saying, no, we're good, we're righteous. We don't have the ability, but God has given us some responsibilities. Repent and believe, serve, be sanctified, edify one another, love one another, bear good fruit. And we don't have the ability to do these things. What do we have? We have a risen, atoning Savior who has given us who? The Holy Spirit. He has the ability. And what's he doing? He's simply correcting us to stay on the narrow way because we keep getting off. We see temptation billboards of things that look really good, sometimes not even sinful. And we just head right for them. And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 come back. Come back and get on the right path. He has the ability. Now, does this mean that our spiritual failures are simply to be brushed aside? No. No, any wickedness before God needs to be deeply repented of, but then it needs to be forgiven. One of the things I love about God, and I do this with my own children, one of my children misbehave, or even if we have a misunderstanding, because you know what, parents? It's not always their fault. Sometimes we really did change our mind, and that's why we say, because I said so, because I can't think of a good reason to say right now. <laughs> Which is not a good argument. Your kids are smart. They're going to hear that. I'm like, yeah, you don't, you don't really have a good reason. <laughs> but I always do this. When we reach a place in the error of repentance, and the child says, I'm sorry. In my house, I always, okay, we're done. It is not to be mentioned ever again after repentance has taken place. We will not bring it up later. We're not going to use it as more examples later on. We're not going to tell people stories about it. And I don't. I don't. Because my father has taken my sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west. I should treat my children differently. No, I raise my children in the example God is using. Jesus died on the cross so that God could forget sin that you and I had yet to commit. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thing. Now what do we do after we failed? Well, I don't believe we're left there in the gospel. I believe there's a recovery. So jump down to verse 24 of chapter 7. We have a little bit more pain to go through for the Apostle Paul demonstrates with an exclamation point. Verse 24 Wretched man I am. So Jesus' I am is I am the word. I am truth. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Paul's I am is I am wretched. See, Paul rightly recognizes the, the distinct places between himself and Christ. 
Christ is exalted. I am wretched. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death, this coffin that is eating me, this flesh that always runs to sin? Who will save? And then he gives it to us. Verse 25. Thanks be to God. So he's worshiping God now through Jesus Christ our Lord. So because Jesus is Lord, God can be appropriately worshipped and the wretchedness forgotten. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. These two things are intention to each other, and they're within you right now, Christian. Right now, battling back and forth. Even to the point right now, as we get closer to 12 o'clock, and your stomach begins to grumble, and your mind can't help but wonder, what are we going to eat today? you're a housewife, you're thinking like, oh, maybe I'll make this or that. Maybe I'll convince him to take me out today. I'm tired of cooking. <laughs> it's easy to do, especially things that aren't sinful. Eating's not sinful. Easy to do. So who is delivering from this body of death? Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only one who can, because he's the only one who died, the only one who was resurrected, and the only one who is exalted at the right hand of the Father. God will give the scroll to him and he's the one worthy to open it. We are wretched people. And we gotta, we got to know that. we got to know that we are wretched. Because you have to start from wretchedness before salvation and sanctification. You have to understand, it's like, it's like getting the diagnosis. Knowing is half the battle. And if you don't think that you're wretched, my friend, you need to mature. You need to grow. This is not a bad thing. I know American culture tells you that's a bad thing to declare about yourself but not the spiritual culture of the Bible. Admitting wretchedness in our culture, that's weakness, right? That's The wolves are going to start coming in on you. But God said, this is what you have to do. You've got to be wretched before me. Because only out of wretchedness can I truly repent. Because if I stand before God, holding my hand behind my back, fingers crossed, oh yeah, Lord, I repent. I'll do whatever you say. But in truth, I'm like, no, I'm going to keep doing what I want. Real wretchedness, recognizing that wretchedness having your face before God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I mentioned earlier that a lot of theologians disagree with this. They don't think that this applies to every Christian. I've even had preachers and teachers tell me that the real mature Christian should never be struggling at all. If they're struggling, they need to, they need to go and fix themselves. And I think about this chapter. And I think about God who... Think about God's plan for a second, right? Paul is probably, let's be honest, the guy we think about as the smartest in the New Testament, right? More than half the New Testament's by his hand. He's brilliant. Have you guys read Romans all the way through? There's no theology book that gets close to how dense Romans is. And this man, who's so smart, did so much, wrote this verse. Wretched man I am. And God gave Paul a life and inspired this word so that you and I could be encouraged from his example. I'm a wretched man too. But thanks be to God through my Lord Jesus Christ. I agree with John Piper about this. He said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord is not a signal that he has moved to a new triumphant life above the battles and losses of Romans 7. 
Instead, this shout of hope is followed by a somber, realistic summary of everything we have seen that Paul, the Christian, is both a new man and an old one. He is both indwelt by spirit and harassed by flesh. He is freed from the dominion of sin and indwelt by remaining corruption. This will be his lot until he dies or until Christ comes. This is the biblical realism of Romans 7. I love that so much. Acts doesn't say it, the Bible doesn't record it, but church history says Paul ran to the chopping block, his hands unbound, and laid his head down. And some sources say was singing. They say glorifying the Lord, which we kind of take to be singing. He was singing in the jail cell in Acts 16, we know that. Because Paul knew, I'm indwelt by spirit and harassed by sin, but after death, Sin will harass me no more. And the indwelling spirit is bringing me home. It's kind of what Jacob understood back in the Old Testament when he saw that ladder going to heaven. He couldn't climb it. His flesh is not going up. Only the soul will be brought up to heaven. Christians, today we have a great hope in this Savior. He will deliver from this evil body of flesh. He will redeem on that last day. He will stand before the judgment seat, having taken all of your sins on himself. He will open the scroll and bring about the end of sin and death and the beginning of eternity. Last verse. Go to Philippians chapter 3. I hope this encourages you today. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Now we who can say amen to all of that can say, yes, that's me. In Romans 7's, I'm the wretched one, and thanks be to my Savior who saved me. Well, this is what we need to live now. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christ is the right thing. Christ will not fail. And we must not fail to follow him, act like him, believe him, repent to him, live like him, and be sanctified and edified by him. In this we will avoid sin and continue to conform to the image of our Savior When a bride gets married, traditionally she takes on the last name of her husband. And we call ourselves the bride of Christ. And this is what we're supposed to do. Take his name and cover ourselves with it. Even the wretchedness, cover it with the name of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much. Lord. And as we continue on now in this Christmas season, Lord, finishing this year, Lord, some strong, some weak maybe, Lord, but we can finish it recognizing that we are wretched, but our glorious Lord Jesus never was. Lord, and he covers us. Lord, even now we are being sanctified, Lord, so that we can glorify the Father in heaven. I thank you, Lord. I ask you to bless these people. Lord, allow them to leave this place now just enjoy glorifying you, Lord, and let us trust in the covering 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blood over the doorpost. He is the bread and wine, Lord. His blood covers. And let me trust in that forever. In your name that we pray.